about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Good morning. Uh, let me say g'day from, uh, from myself, uh, adding my welcome to Kezes. My name's Andrew Errington. I'm the senior minister here. It's really good to be with you all this Easter Sunday. There's people here from our morning service at 10 o'clock. There's people from the afternoon service, Cottage Church at 4.30, and from the evening, 6.30. Uh, and it's great to be together. Uh, and it's also, there are also faces I don't recognize. So can I say especially warm welcome to you if this is your first time here or if you haven't been here in a while. It's really good to have you with us. Uh, we hope you'll be able to meet some people, uh, get a sense of this community a little more. We would love to get to know you and uh, join and, and, and kind of help you find your way into this community if you'd like to. Um, let's turn to that wonderful passage. It is, as Michael said, on the back of your outlines. Um, and, yeah, there's not really anything else to say about that. We're going to look at it. What has happened? What has happened? That's what Luke's account pictures Peter wondering to himself early on the first Easter morning as he turns away from the empty tomb in which the body of Jesus had been laid only two days before. What has happened? It is, in fact, the crucial question. What actually happened? It is no good trying to avoid this question or minimising its importance. Sometimes people do this. We think that perhaps it doesn't really matter what actually happened. What matters is just the difference that it makes today. What matters is not whether the tomb was actually empty and whether Jesus really came back to life, as the Gospels say. No, what what matters is just how the story affects us, how it empowers and inspires people today. You can see how people think that, can't you? The earliest Christians, though, were adamant that that was not the case. It matters, they insisted, that this really happened. Listen to the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the church at Corinth. If Christ has not been raised, writes Paul, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, We are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And the context makes it clear that Paul means fully, bodily, really alive again. If Christ has not been raised, he goes on, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ are lost, 
If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul, at least, would not have put up with the idea that we needn't worry too much whether it happened or not. Paul would have had no truck with the idea that what matters is just just the power of this story today. No, he says, we need to know if it happened. So what did happen? Dare we ask it? We have to ask it. It's what matters most. The earlier Christians, of course, are unanimous. On the first day of the week, they say, the Sunday after Jesus had been crucified and buried, some of them discovered that the tomb in which the body of the dead Jesus had been laid was empty. Nobody. And then shortly after, they began to meet Jesus alive again, restored to perfect life. Well, that, of course, is quite the story. It is, to say the least, unusual. We can't really believe that that is what happened, can we? The problem, though, is that the alternative explanations are not good. I won't go into this at great length, but if you're interested to follow it up, there's a pamphlet on the way, uh, on the way in and the way out in the foyer uh, about the resurrection accounts. It's called The Resurrection of Jesus. Is there any reason to take it seriously? Uh, it'll take you a few steps further if you'd like to. But to cut a long story short, the problem that all the alternative explanations bump up against in the end, is simply the stories we have in the Gospels of what happened. These stories just don't look like fabrications. They just don't look like someone made them up. For they include details that have a powerful ring of authenticity and that it is extremely hard to imagine being included in a a story that was invented. In Luke's account, for example, which was read before, we hear in verse 11 that when the women who had been at the tomb reported their story to the apostles, quote, they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. This is an extraordinarily unlikely detail to be included in a made-up story. Not just because it draws attention to the idea you would be trying to get out of, a, out of the way, that this all seems like nonsense, but also because it draws attention to the importance of the women's testimony in the story. Now, this, of course, is no problem for us. I hope it's no problem for you. It's no problem for me. But in the ancient world, that was actually an embarrassing detail because women's testimony was regarded as unreliable. That's stupid, but that's how it was. So this is the kind of detail that people only include if they're trying to say what actually happened. Nor do the stories in the Gospels make sense as a kind of symbolic description of what happened to the disciples after Jesus died. 
This is one of the other explanations for the resurrection, actually. The idea is that what actually happened is something fairly uncontroversial, not, not too challenging. What actually happened is that the disciples were devastated by the loss of Jesus, but then after his death, they began to be inspired by him, or they had some kind of rich experience of his ongoing power and presence, and then they began to speak of this as being raised from the dead. And energized by Jesus' example, they began the church. Now, that is an idea that is a lot less confronting and difficult than the idea that Jesus was actually raised from the dead. I mean, you can see why people might want to think about that. But if you look at that idea closely, it's actually very hard to believe. It's hard to believe, firstly, because the language of resurrection is just the wrong language to describe that kind of thing. Jesus' day had lots of ways of talking about spirit and energy and power and even ghosts and things. But they don't use that language. They use the language of risen from the dead and resurrection. And resurrection was a way of talking about bodies coming back to life. It's also pretty hard to square this idea with the way the early Christian movement takes shape. You see, the early Christian movement is, is not a movement that is driven primarily by Jesus' moral teaching or by his example and trying to emulate him. Those things are there in the mix, but they are absolutely not in the driving seat. No, in the driving seat of the early Christian movement is what they called news. News. The news that Jesus is actually alive again and has become the king of the world. Many of the apostles and other followers of Jesus went on to be killed because they were saying this and they wouldn't stop saying this. So the idea of some kind of growing, developing experience of Jesus' power and life after he died simply doesn't cut it as an explanation for the early Christian movement. But again, most of all, what this explanation bumps into is the gospel accounts. Because they don't make sense as a kind of symbolic or metaphorical description of some experience that happened to the disciples. They are, to put it bluntly, they're just too messy. In Luke's account, for example, there is the interesting detail that the women at the tomb don't remember Jesus' words that he would die and rise again. It's fascinating, this detail, because you would think that that's the kind of thing you would remember, especially when you're confronted with an empty tomb. And perhaps, if the accounts were different at a point like this, right? imagine if the story they told was of the disciples remembering and meditating on these words of Jesus, that he would die and rise again. And the story they told was that the disciples were thinking about these things and meditating them on them. Then it might be more plausible to see the Gospels as a kind of symbolic narrative for a transformation in the disciples. But 
That's not the story they tell. The story they tell is one where all the disciples are bewildered, totally unprepared. Even though Jesus had said these things to them before, they're completely at a loss. The Gospels tell a story of people shocked and upended by something extraordinary that happened that they were not expecting. The fact is, these stories look a lot like what they say they are. The record of eyewitness testimony of the events of the first Easter morning. What they record is stunning. However much sexism there was in the disciples' response when the women told them what they'd seen, and I think there was probably a lot, it's also true that the story does seem like nonsense. But this, they say, is just what happened. Early on the morning after the Sabbath that followed the day of Jesus' crucifixion, some women disciples went to the tomb to prepare the body and they found it empty. And then they met figures who told them that Jesus had been raised from the dead. The tomb was empty, not metaphorically, but really. And Jesus was alive once again. And that, they tell us, is what actually happened. Their testimony deserves to be taken seriously by every one of us. But so what? So what? Why does it matter, even if this is actually what happened? What difference does that make? Well, let me say two things at this point. The first is to invite you to come back to church over the next two Sundays. And then because they'll be so amazing for the rest of your life. In the next two Sundays, we're going to read and think about the rest of Luke chapter 24. There is more to say, of course, than is in this chapter, but it's a good start. We will see how the resurrection begins to make a difference to the lives of the disciples and to the way they think about the world. So come back to church, that's the first thing. But the second thing to say is simply that the short answer to why it matters is that it means the entire world is changed forever. In fact, the news of the resurrection confronts each one of us with a profound choice between reality and fantasy. We see this in the passage we read from Luke's account. As they stood before the empty tomb, the women were faced with something that means they are in danger of stepping into a fantasy land. But the fantasy is not that Jesus is alive. The fantasy is that he isn't. Standing there with their spices and oils ready to anoint the body they have actually lost touch with reality. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Asks the angel. Are you crazy? He's not here among the dead. He's alive. Don't you remember what he said? The Son of Man must be delivered 
over to the hands of sinners and be crucified and on the third day be raised again. And then they do remember those words and with that memory, the strangeness and wonder of reality crashes into them. On that first Easter morning, something happened that did not make sense in ordinary terms. Something that was not business as usual, that could not be accommodated or computed within our natural way of knowing the world. Something far more challenging than simply an idea that the disciples were inspired by Jesus' example. No, much more than that. Something happened that brings the way of knowing the world that comes naturally to all of us to a shuddering, convulsive stop. And it ought to make every one of us ask ourselves, what world am I living in? In the real world or in a fantasy land? There is no doubt that it seems like, it seems like, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is, is fantasy. And thinking that he did not rise and remains dead, it seems like that is reality. The resurrection, of course, seems ludicrous, impossible. The women's report seemed like nonsense to the disciples, but when Peter went to the tomb, there it stood, empty, bodiless, with just some strips of linen. And so he went away wondering what had happened. Actually, it's, it's not the women's story that's nonsense. It's everything else. It's the ordinary way of knowing and seeing things, the ordinary assumptions we make, the relentless, ordinary logic of death. That's what is nonsense now. That's what is now a fantasy land because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. This morning, friends, let us stand here with the women and Peter by the empty tomb and ask ourselves, what world will we live in? In the real world or in a fantasy land? The world in which Jesus stayed dead, as dead people tend to do, and it, in which his words were, at best, a metaphor, and there's nothing much to see, and sin and evil win the day, and all there is in the end is the heat death of the universe. That seems like the real world, the rational world. But it is a fantasy land. Because that world came to an end when Jesus rose from the dead and he lives now. And he is seated at the right hand of God and he says this, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now behold I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. That is the real world that burst open that first Easter morning. The 
The purpose of celebrating Easter is to remember that this is what happened. It was remembering Jesus' words that shook the women awake from the world of fantasy and brought them back to reality. In the same way, what we must do is to remember that Jesus is alive and let this truth stay with us. When the weight of this world bears down upon us, when hopelessness and death loom larger than life, when the love of God feels distant and impossible, when the mistakes we have made or the habits we cannot kick fill us with shame and despair, then it must stay with us that a word of grace and life has been spoken that cannot be undone and that we have only to receive it in faith with thanksgiving. And when we are tempted to think that the world belongs to those who are strong and invincible, when we envy those who live with wealth and ease, and when we look at our own achievements and powers with satisfaction, then too we must remember that Jesus is alive and the world is already his. And we must lay down all our big and small crowns before his feet. The old world of death and pride is so real, so oppressive, so inevitable. But we must remember, it is fantasy. For Christ is risen. This Easter, friends, let me invite you to live in the real world. The world in which the tomb was left empty. And no memorial for Jesus is needed And he is alive, the Lord of heaven and earth. Don't fall back into forgetfulness and unreality. Here is the truth. In faith and confidence in Jesus, the living one. Here is reality. Here is life. Let me pray. Our Lord Jesus. We praise you as the living one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, in whose hands are the keys of death and judgment. We praise you for the good news of your resurrection, this word of life for us, of grace from God and of hope for the future. Enable us all by faith to live in the light of this dawning, wonderful, splendid reality. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.